but they never taught me about saving at all. So I know a lot of people raise their kids where, you know, when they get their allowance, they have to put some aside for savings. That was not a thing that we ever even considered. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of The Fi Show. First, let's check in with the co-host, Cody. How's it going? Nothing too much, man. Just came off another nice weekend. My brother actually just turned 22, so shout out to my brother, Sam. Happy birthday. How about you, man? Yeah, man. I'm actually coming off a pretty crazy weekend myself. So my best friend growing up who we went to college, everything together, he came in, best man at his wedding, that sort of friendship. We went to a a local country concert on Thursday night. Then we did the Red Sox games Friday night. And then we did a big country concert out of Gillette Stadium on Saturday before taking him to the airport Sunday. So time for some sleep, I think. Definitely sounds like it's time for some sleep. And speaking of the airport, and it sounds like you definitely didn't have a plane weekend, we have an awesome guest on today. She is a member of the Air Force, and it's military dollar, but we don't want to steal the entire show away from her. So take it away, MD. Well, before I get into that, I do want to give a quick disclaimer because I am an active duty military member. Uh, the views I expressed today are my own and may not reflect the views of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. So now that I've got that out of the way, let's talk freely. So when I was in college, I had a little bit of a problem paying my bills because I was a poor college student, didn't have a lot of money, and I had started to get it a little bit under control, but then my parents came to visit and we're spending all of my money. I mean, they were just taking half-hour showers and leaving <laughs> the lights on in the house and wanting to go out to dinner. And I just had a little bit of a freak-out moment. And so I decided I really needed to get better about my money. And so that's what happened. It, when I was in college, I started learning about money. I was working back then about 20 to 30 hours a week when I was not in school. And then during the summers, I was working 50 to 60 hours a week. So I made enough money to live, but it was, of course, like minimum wage jobs. So I didn't really start to build up my money at that point, but I started reading a lot of books and learning about how personal finance worked and how to save and how to invest so that once I started earning real money, I knew what to do with it. Awesome. And so I just want to kind of put one little thing in there just to help level set some of the listeners if they're not very familiar with the military. So you're a military officer. Obviously, if you don't know, there are enlisted side of the house and there's officers. Officers have to have a college degree to come into the military. And there's a couple different ways they can come in. They can come in through after they get their college degree, they can do something called ROTC where they're doing it at the same time they're in college. Or there's the what a lot of people are familiar with, which is like the academies, like the Air Force Academy. Could you tell us like which route you used? I mean, you said you were in like a normal college, so it sounds like not the academy, but did you do what would be called OTS or taking, you know, going into the training after college or were you doing that while you're in college through ROTC? Yeah. So I did not do officer training school, which in retrospect sounds really nice because you only have a few weeks of training instead of four years, but I did the full four years of Air Force Reserve Officer Training Corps in college. So I had full-time school plus ROTC plus my job plus I was a student counselor so <laughs> I was pretty busy in college. One thing that I was curious about with your background is maybe some people don't realize it but going to the Air Force Academy is obviously free. But there's like it's just free like you can't really make money. Yeah, you get like a little stipend but you can't really make money. With ROTC 
you can get a scholarship and you can get regular scholarships and you can get regular grants and financial aid where if you did like me, you can come out making a decent amount of money while you're in school. You can get that kind of plus up. So did you get any of the like the high school scholarships, like scholarships coming into it? Did you get any of the scholarships after you're already in the training? Did they give you any financial assistance other than just like a little stipend? They did. I had what was called a type two ROTC scholarship. So I got $15,000 a year plus starting my sophomore year, I got a monthly stipend, which sounded like a lot of money, except that I went to a very expensive private university. So had I gone to like my hometown university, it would have covered everything. And I probably would have come out of college making money. Instead, I went to an extremely expensive university and that scholarship plus several other scholarships that I had plus working my way through college, I still came out with $27,000 in student debt, plus some credit card debt, plus a car payment. So <laughs> <laughs> I I definitely could have done things more financially responsible when it came to college. But, you know, I made lifelong friends in college. I like where I went to college. So I don't regret it. It's just, it wasn't the wisest choice money-wise. So before we kind of dig into that stuff, I just want to ask you a precursor question just to preface this and get a little bit more background on yourself. You're telling us before that your parents were ballers. You know, they're taking 30 minute showers, wasting all of your hot water money. They're making you go out to eat with them. Was that kind of the environment you grew up in where your parents would just spend everything they made or did they kind of instill some kind of frugality and savings mindset into you? No, my parents both grew up pretty poor and then they started their own business. They're both entrepreneurs. And my mother has a little bit of a savings mindset, but not nearly as much as I do. My dad was very much of the mindset of you've got to spend it while you have it because you might not have it for very long. So I grew up where, I mean, we always had really nice things because they were very successful entrepreneurs. So we had a nice house in a good neighborhood, in a good school district. We had nice cars. We went on nice vacations, but they never taught me about saving at all. So I know a lot of people raise their kids where, you know, when they get their allowance, they have to put some aside for savings. That was not a thing that we ever even considered. As soon as money came into my hands, it was, I was buying, you know, the penny candy at the grocery store. So I think I went off to college with $150 total in savings. And that's only because we managed to talk down the person I was buying a car from because it was very important that I have my own car. So I spent all my money on my car. And so that leads into the next question, what you were just talking about before. You said you left college, you had credit card debt. Did you say you had a car payment and you also had $20,000 in student loans? What was kind of going through your mindset at that time? Like, were you thinking I need to save some money or were you like, you know what? I'm going to be a baller once I get into the military after I graduate and start my job. No. So since I had started learning about personal finance when I was still in college, I knew that as soon as I started getting a good paycheck, I was going to start paying off all those loans very quickly. So the total accounting was I had 27,000 in student loans, a little bit more than that. I had a few thousand in credit cards and then I had a car loan, but it was, you know, an older used car. So of course I bought a brand new, what we call Lieutenant Mobile. (laughs) And I, I can hear Justin because Basically, every lieutenant does the exact same thing. They go and they get a brand new car. I bought one too, so. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Luckily, I only got a Honda Civic, and so it wasn't too bad. But in total, within six months of joining the military, I had $42,000 in debt. But I 
started very quickly paying all of that off. So I paid off the car in three and a half years. I paid off the credit cards basically as soon as I could. And I also paid off all of my student loans uh, in three and a half years. So by the time I pinned on captain, which in the Air Force comes at your four-year commissioned point, so four years after you commission as an officer, I had paid off all of my debt. So a lot of people who are listening may not be familiar with this idea of the military kind of picking a job for you. So what did you go to school for? And did you end up actually using that degree for what it, you know, what you studied? Sort of. My degree has kind of a funny name and it's very specific to the college that I went to, but it's basically a political science degree. So there's not a political science career field in the Air Force. The job that I do is an operational job that's totally separate from political science. But as a military officer, it's very important that you stay aware of the geopolitical and socioeconomic situations going on around the world, because that's going to tell you where hotspots are going to arise and where you might be deployed in the future. And then also, I've taken on a secondary AFSC, that's a Air Force specialty code or a job in the Air Force. So I'm also a strategist. And so the political science degree has helped me in those things, even though it's not directly applicable. And so another part of the the money journey that I also wanted to make sure that I asked was, it sounded like the reason you kind of started getting more serious about money when you're in college is because you needed to, like you were, you know, low on funds. But once you came into the military, you start getting that good paycheck, you know, you've bought that lieutenant car. What was it that kept you staying serious about finances and not kind of taking your foot off the gas? Like, how did you keep yourself motivated? What was the target? What inspired you? So like both of you, I'm very interested in the financial independence, retire early portion of the personal finance community. And unlike a lot of people in the FIRE community, I am not pursuing FIRE because I hate my job. I am actually pursuing FIRE because I love my job and I don't ever want to do anything else. And so in the military, most officers, if they manage to make it to 20 years, which a lot don't, the ones that do manage to make it 20 years very few go beyond that. So it's really like once you hit 20 years, there's a sharp drop off where a lot of people retire from the military at that point. And then they usually go and they're a government contractor for the most part. I have no interest in doing that. I want to be in the military until I'm done being in the military. And then once I'm done and I retire from the military, I don't want to work for pay again. So that's what kept me on this path is knowing that I don't want to have to get another job. Luckily, so far, it's actually worked out for me that way because a lot of my other friends, their path has changed along the way. And a lot of them ended up getting out of the military and not making it to retirement. And a lot of them are stay-at-home parents or they're contractors or they're teachers or I know a guy that owns a car wash. Like everybody's gone off and done all sorts of different paths. I'm one of the few people I know where my current situation matches what I thought it would 15 years ago. So this is a perfect transition into something, a certain blog article on your site, actually, that I wanted to talk about. And we are going to get into some tactics later because we do have quite a few military listeners and you are just a wealth of military knowledge, as I've heard on other podcasts and on your site. But specifically, I want to talk about the problem with choose a job you love and you will never work a day in your life. Could you talk a little bit about what the inspiration behind that post was and what exactly that means? Yeah. So in the personal finance community, especially on Twitter, so On Facebook, we tend to talk a lot to readers and to podcast listeners. And on Twitter, we tend to all be talking to one another, all the content creators. And I just saw on Twitter, time after time after time, people saying, 
you know, you shouldn't be telling people that they should work hard to get financially independent as soon as they can. You should just tell them to find a job they love as if it's just that easy, as if everybody can just do exactly what they love and get paid big bucks for it. And that's just not true. And I just got so frustrated seeing that be the advice that people were giving because I'm not I'm not saying that people shouldn't try to find a job they love. That's great if you can do that. But there's too many times when that's just not possible, either because people do not have required skill sets. So Justin talked earlier about how in order to be an Air Force officer, you have to have a college degree. If you don't have a college degree, you can't just go become a military officer. So if that's what somebody wants to do, they can't go get that job today. If somebody wants to be a painter, well, you can probably start being a painter today, but that does not mean you're going to make a living off of it because a lot of jobs that people love to do are not necessarily jobs that pay very well. So I'm lucky that I have a good paying job that I also enjoy, but not everybody can do that. And so I just had a little bit of a rant about it. So playing devil's advocate quickly, I know there's a lot of things like Alan Donegan's pop-up business school and people making money doing like the most obscure things now in 2019 on the internet. Are you like opposed to someone who say loves knitting and they start like a knitting blog or vlog online and they're crushing it and making like 75K a year? Are you saying that's not possible? Were you just kind of addressing the masses here? Oh, I am absolutely addressing the masses. If individuals want to start a knitting blog and become like the world, I don't know, world champion of knitting, if that's a thing, <laughs> go for it. But that should not be the advice that personal finance bloggers and podcasters are giving. They cannot tell everybody, go be the world's best knitter, because that's just not feasible. So... I highly recommend people go after their dreams. I'm just saying in the meantime, you got to keep paying your bills. Got it. Yeah, no, I can totally see where you're going with that because I'm in like a similar boat of mentality where I really like what I do. And then, you know, if I did get out, I would probably choose a job that I would really like to do, but it would pay four times what something that I would love to do would pay. So that's kind of that. I mean, I don't think anybody should waste decades of their life being miserable in a in an effort to retire a little earlier. But, you know, it's kind of finding that that trade off that trade space, that fine line between understanding that it may not be the absolute dream. Like I would probably have a little more fun taking people scuba diving than I would being in some of the meetings I'm in. But I don't hate my job by any means. <laughs> like I enjoy what I do, but it pays a heck of a lot more than, you know, taking someone scuba diving. So I think that there's the answer lies somewhere in the middle. Like you can't just blindly chase your dreams, but you also don't want to find yourself depressed and divorced and everything else because you just, you hate your life. Yes. And so that is when I have the other side that I also am always recommending to people of, okay, now you are just hating life. And the only reason you're pursuing financial independence is because you hate your job so much. In that case, you should absolutely be spending your spare time looking for a better job because you also should not be making yourself miserable on this path to financial independence. The reason to be FI is not to get rid of the specific job that you are doing. It is to provide yourself with options. So one thing that I think it kind of dovetails into this conversation, but it also gets us back talking about some military specific stuff is I feel like sometimes I'll see people who will move to these like really remote small towns, which sometimes it makes them happy, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes they move there just so that they could get their expenses down and hit financial independence sooner. 
And in the military, your pay is actually, you know, changed based on your location, your basic allowance for housing. So I know that was one thing that actually drew me towards Boston. Like I, I purposefully chose to move here because I knew how much we got for housing and how with all that being tax free, I saw that that is me getting like a 15 to 20 percent pay increase just by moving. And just curious if you ever used that to specifically choose a location where you were living, you know, looking at the financials of it and not just the job you're going after or maybe where the Air Force sent you. I never have. I can see why that is something that people would want to look at and maybe even should look at. But I have always pursued the exact jobs that I want. And luckily, the Air Force has actually, for the most part, done precisely that. I will say I'm currently living in one of those small towns. It's not super duper small. I'm not in a rural area by any means, but I moved from D.C. and now I'm in a small town in the southwest U.S. And it is very different and it is much cheaper than D.C., of course. But because the D.C. cost of living was so high and I like to live alone. So that is a non-negotiable for me. If I'm dating somebody, that's one thing to live with them. But I am not going to find a roommate off of Craigslist. So (laughs) because of that, it actually was a little bit more expensive for me in D.C. One thing I love to do is go out to eat. And here, when I go out to eat, I can have a really nice steak dinner for $20. So that's not a thing that exists in D.C. So on the same thread of kind of keeping costs down and just understanding where your money's going, I know we were talking specifically about housing here, but I have a bunch of friends who are, is it 01? Is that the first rank of officer or 02? Something like that. Oh, yeah. Could you just kind of give us a lay of the land? Like, what exactly are you taking in for money? Like, what is your allowance for housing? If you could kind of take us through a high level overview and then talk about some common mistakes you see people who just get into name your armed forces branch and how they could change that. Okay, so if we're talking about officer ranks, and to make it super simple and a little oversimplified, for enlisted ranks, you can basically take all the numbers, I'm going to say, and divide by half for equivalent amount of time in service. So I've been in for 15 years. An enlisted person who's been in for 15 years will make about half the amount that I do. Make sense? Yep. Okay, so right now, my... Basic pay, which is just our our normal paycheck, not any of our allowances, is because I'm a, a lieutenant colonel or an O5, and that's the fifth officer rank, I'm making a little over $8,000 a month in base pay. So somebody who's enlisted in for 15 years would be making about $4,000 a month in base pay. And then on top of that, we get paid for food, and that's called the basic allowance for subsistence. And for officers, it's a little over $250 a month. And for enlisted, I want to say it's like $360 a month. They get more than officers do. And then housing allowance is one of those things that Justin was talking about that really depends on where you live. So when I was living in D.C. a few years ago, my housing allowance was over $2,700 per month. Where I currently live, it's a little less than $1,300 per month. So it's half. So You can have a huge, I mean, you're talking five-digit swings in your annual compensation based on where you live. And then there's also things like, so I'm single, no, it's called single, no dependents. So I don't have a husband and I don't have any children. So because of that, I get the single, no dependents rate for my housing allowance. If I were married and or had children, 
I would get a couple hundred dollars more per month for my housing allowance because the assumption is you're going to have a bigger place if you have more people in your family. And then those are the three basic things that go into a military paycheck. There's also all, there's like 27 other allowances or I don't know, a hundred. There's a bunch of other allowances that you can get for having special skill sets, being in certain jobs. So we're in the Air Force. So in the Air Force, anybody who's air crew and actually flies in a plane as part of their job, they get a monthly stipend because of that. If you speak certain languages, you get a monthly stipend because of that. In the Navy, there's a there's nuke pay. So if you work with nuclear engines, like on a submarine, or maybe if you work with nuclear weapons, I'm not sure, you get extra money for that. Things like that. And then the second part of your question was mistakes people make. So I would say there's kind of the tried and true mistakes. So everybody gets the brand new car when they enter into the military. Like I said, I was lucky in that I had been studying personal finance for a while. So I at least did not get some ridiculous interest rate on my car. There are plenty of people who get interest rates of more than 20% when they go and buy that brand new military car. So that's a big one. People also love to buy cars when they're deployed, because if you buy your car while you are in a what's called a combat zone tax exclusion area, you don't pay tax on your car. So is really popular for people to spend all their nice deployment money on getting another brand new car a couple of years later. And then one thing that just kind of, it's not well as well known, but it sticks out to me, is that a lot of military people only consider their base pay when they think about how much they're paid, because that's what it says on their W-2. And so they think they are poorer than they actually are. So I, I mean, I have friends of mine who, when I ask them how much they got paid as officer or as an enlisted person, they legit thought they were getting paid like $20,000 less per year than they actually were because they didn't consider any of the allowances to be compensation. I have a funny story about that once. Somebody was arguing me with me once about why they shouldn't consider their housing pay to be part of their paycheck. And they said the reason was because they needed a place to live. And I said, well, civilians need a place to live too. <laughs> and it comes out of their paycheck. <laughs> so I think if military people actually paid more attention to how much money they make and how much money they're not spending on their benefits. So active duty military get just totally free healthcare. We don't pay anything for our healthcare. We get cheap food and cheap consumer goods if you buy things on base, things like that. If you think about that stuff, you're actually getting paid a lot more than most people realize. Yeah, I think what you were just kind of striking on there hits me like right in the heart because I see so many people who they look at their BAH of whatever city they move to and they're just like, but yeah, but that's what I get to spend for housing. So it doesn't matter. And I'm like, no, it's just part of your paycheck. And it's actually a very powerful part of your paycheck because it's that tax-free money. I mean, and just to pile into some of those, like the numbers you're asking, Cody, about like pay differences, literally same time and service, same rank, everything. I moved from Colorado where my housing allowance was, I want to say about $1,400 a month to Boston where it was just over $3,000 a month. And so you're talking about $1,600 a month, almost $20,000 a year difference in pay. That's after taxes pay, right? So that's like a serious difference in pay. But my rent only went up about $350 a month. 
So that was a huge difference in the amount of money I could keep in my pocket. But so many people, they just, they do exactly what she said. Like they just peg their housing costs to what their BAH is, their, their housing allowance is. And another thing she said, which is very accurate too, is not understanding what they would have to make in the private sector. So my W-2 may say that I make like 60 something thousand dollars. Like that's if I, if I wasn't putting any money into retirement accounts, I mean, I could make it look like I make $30,000 a year. But let's say a, just a normal tax, a W-2 is say it makes 60 something thousand dollars a year because that's just my base pay. You can't go out and think like, well, I can quit this job and take a job that pays 80,000 and think you're going to be making the, getting the same amount of money in your pocket. That's so far from being true. I mean, because <laughs> I make $92,000 after taxes and I have free health insurance, which means I got to be making north of $130,000 from a private sector. Like if they make me a job offer, they need to literally be paying me double what my W-2 says just to keep the same pay that I have now. So yeah, I hope people really take heed to that part. Like don't call your housing allowance anything special. It's just part of your pay. It's a locality bonus. It has nothing to do with your house. And then don't think that you can take a job offer that matches your W-2 and nothing's going to change. So those are those are good points. And so as someone who's not military, I just want to go kind of go back into the numbers. MD, military dollar. From what you were saying, your housing is completely covered. You get a food stipend every month. You don't have to pay for too much transportation or car stuff. I mean, it seems like pretty much everything's taken care of. What are people spending money on? Oh, Justin's shaking his head vigorously well, how, at so me. So when you say, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm sorry. When you say that housing is totally covered, you're falling back into the argument that we were just <laughs> fighting against. It just as happens to be part of your pay. She can pay whatever she wants to for housing. The military doesn't just like give her a house. Okay, let me rephrase. Yeah. So let's pretend, let's just put it in a separate pool. It still counts as your regular income. So it seems like, I mean, if you're super savvy with your money, you could just put all of your base pay into retirement accounts of some sort. Military dollar, could you just talk a little bit about, I mean, I, we just talked about some mistakes, but it sounds like you could shove 75, 80% of your income away into some kind of savings vehicle. Is that crazy to assume? It's not crazy. It's definitely doable. I think if you just walked up to any random person on a base and said that, they would think you were crazy. <laughs> because at the end of the day, American citizens are going to spend money on a big screen TV and going on trips. And, you know, most people don't even know travel hacking exists. So they're not going to be saving money that way. They're going to be buying clothes. And, you know, it, yeah, there's plenty of ways that you can not spend the money, but that does not necessarily mean that people aren't going to spend the money. So I will tell you that, like I said, from the moment I started in the Air Force, I was already on this path. And so I have been saving a very large savings rate for a long time. But even I, every once in a while, will catch myself going, why did I spend $1,000 on clothing this year? Like, <laughs> I am not a fashion plate. I'm not out there wearing Gucci. So... Like, it does not cost that much to buy clothes at Target. And yet, every once in a while, I'll go, hmm, I just spent money. Like, why? Why? Why did I spend money? I don't know. Because the money was there. And that's how most people live. And so, if people don't know, if they are not consciously thinking about the fact that they really don't have to spend all this money, they're going to spend it because the money's there. I will tell you, I cannot find this story online. And that really bothers me because I always want to pull it out. But when I was a lieutenant... I was reading a magazine in the military called the Military Times, and then each of the services has their own. So it, I was reading in Air Force Times, and it was a story about a kid 
who was getting out of the military after his four-year assign- or his four-year commitment was up. He was enlisted, and they were giving him a paycheck of a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, roughly, it wasn't exactly that, obviously. But what had happened was he lived on base, so he did not have any housing costs. He ate in the chow hall, so he did not have any food costs. He lived within walking distance of work, so he didn't have any transportation costs. And then had very few other cloths. So like a little bit for clothing, a little bit for entertainment, but not much because especially back then there were more on-base services. So he could get a lot of stuff for free. Well, it turns out they had not been paying him for all four years of his commitment. And he just, you know, just being kind of a little bit passive and not realizing how very wrong things were, he just kept not getting paid. And so when he went out process from the military, they're like, oh my God, we owe you $100,000. You haven't been getting paid for four years. How were you able to live? And he said, well, you gave me a place to live. You gave me food to eat. You gave me the uniforms I had to wear to work. So I only had to buy like a pair of jeans every year. And so he would just borrow a little bit of money from his parents. And he lived through four years of military service having no spending money. And he got through it. So is it possible? Absolutely, it is possible. It has happened in the past. Is it something I recommend? No, I recommend you go to the finance office if you're not getting paid and yell at them and get your money so that you can put it into the TSP and earn more money. That's insane. But it actually like that story kind of, I think, helps explain like the better way of thinking about this. So in that situation, they were giving him a place to live. But when they do give you a place to live, they also pay you less. So it's kind of an either or. They can either give you a place to live or they can pay you more. So I think that probably helped some people. But speaking of the TSP, what are your thoughts on the TSP? I feel like I see some people out there who love it for its low expense ratios. And some people are terrified of it because they just think, well, the government's not very good at anything. So why would I trust <laughs> them with my money? So just love to get your thoughts on the TSP. Sure. So I am definitely in the camp of I love the TSP. It has very low expense ratios, so it's super cheap to use. It has very, very simple investment options, so you don't have to think about it too hard. There are plenty of people who like to think about it too hard and constantly move their money around, but you do not have to do that. You can be very successful just sticking it into one or two funds and never touching it again. I will say to address the thing about people not trusting that the government's going to be good with their money, While I understand that you have a logic process there, what you are not thinking about is the fact that the U.S. government actually does not run the TSP. So they own the TSP, but the TSP is managed, I think, by BlackRock right now is who currently has the contract for that. So it's it's totally normal money managers, just like Vanguard or just like Fidelity. It is professionals who do this every single day of their life that are running the TSP. It is not you know, your old master sergeant that never had any money in his pocket that's running the TSP. It's not some senator that you hate that's running the TSP. It's professionals. Yeah, I love the TSP too. And like what you said, it is very simple. It's almost like everything you love about Vanguard, but even simpler. Like you have a couple target funds, you have that kind of inflation protected G fund, and then you have like a small cap, a large cap, international. I mean, it's that's it. It's all the great things, the low expenses, you know, the getting to buy the total stock market, but it's even simpler for folks. So yeah, I think I also think it's a great avenue. 
So military dollar for people who are maybe they haven't really looked into the TSP yet. They're in the military right now. What is your recommendation? This is for someone who doesn't want to do any legwork, doesn't really want to do any investment strategy or anything like that. Do you have just kind of a base investment plan for them? Yeah, if they're willing to accept some risk. So if they have a high risk tolerance and the thought of losing money in the stock market doesn't scare them, because of course, you're not really losing money until you sell then I would recommend they stick with the C fund, which is that S&P 500 fund, the F, or not the F fund, the S fund, which is the small cap fund, and then maybe some from the I fund, which is the international. Those are the stock funds within the TSP. If they are a little more risk adverse or really don't want to ever think about it, like they want to have their TSP account for 60 years and not think about it for one second of that time, then they could use one of the life cycle funds or the L funds. Because a life cycle fund is going to automatically adjust it over time. It's just like what's called a target date fund in the civilian world. Those are kind of conservative. I mean, they have more of their money in bonds and especially in the G fund, which is government securities, than I personally like. I think it's a little more conservative than it needs to be. But if you never want to think about it and you don't want to ever adjust your asset allocation, it's a perfect fit. And. I guess like, so when you start looking at towards the end of your career, I mean, if you're a, you're a lieutenant colonel, so if you're, if you start getting close to that point where it's, it's time to retire, are there any kind of special considerations that somebody in the military needs to think about, whether that's the state that they live in, like how they would tax your pension or whether it's drawing down from that TSP, just walk us through kind of what the back half of your financial plan looks like. So the tax situation is definitely one that I think a lot of people don't realize, Because a lot of people in the military, if they do not start their career in a tax-free state, being a citizen or or a resident of a tax-free state, they will try to get to a tax-free state so that they can become a resident there. And then in the military, if you're on active orders, you can keep that as long as you're in the military. So I am a Nevada resident because I don't have to pay Nevada state income tax. So that's awesome. A lot of people are Florida residents, Texas residents, Alaska residents for the same reason. I think there's like 11 states that they can do that with. So because people are not necessarily used to paying state income tax, that's definitely something that you're going to want to think about when you're getting out of the military is where am I going to move and how is that going to affect things? Because like you were saying, you know, you would need $130,000 to get equivalent to what you're making right now as a captain. Well, I don't know whether or not you've considered the state income tax part of that. But if you go to some place with a high state income tax, maybe you actually need $140,000. I don't know exactly your situation, but that's something that a lot of people haven't thought about. And the military pension is taxed like regular income. So you pay federal income tax on it. And then if you have a state income tax, you will have to pay tax on that too. So those are some things to think about. As far as TSP, some of the things that I'm thinking about right now are, first of all, will I have to withdraw from the TSP? And if I have to withdraw from the TSP, how am I going to do it? How am I going to be taking my money out? So the good news is the TSP is actually changing starting September of this year. They're changing their withdrawal options. So it used to be that you had to withdraw proportionally from both your traditional and your Roth TSP, which kind of sucked because you didn't get to optimize your taxes that way. That's changing. You can make more lump sum withdrawals from your TSP which is a big change that's happening. So just paying attention to what those rules are. A lot of people used to roll their money from their TSP into an IRA 
because the TSP did not have good withdrawal options, now that it's going to have much better options, you don't necessarily have to do that. And you can leave it in the TSP, which, as we have already discussed, is a really good option. And so something that you kind of hinted about there, and we haven't really touched on it, having a pension and saving up for financial independence kind of makes you double fi and you are absolutely on your way or maybe already there military dollar to double fi. So could you just talk about like how the whole pension process works? Do you have to stay in for the full 20 years to get anything? And then what does that pension look like in terms of pay compared to what you were making during your career? Sure. So first of all, about how long you have to stay in the basic rule is that you have to stay in at least 20 years. And that's whether you're a reservist, a guardsman, or in active duty. There are some exceptions to that. So for instance, right now, the Marines are offering a very limited number of people early retirement. So you can get out as early as 15 years. You get a reduced pension, obviously, if you do that. But that's an option. And then there's also medical reasons. So if you have a medical issue that makes you no longer allowed to be in the military, you can either be medically separated or medically retired. Medically retired is much better because medical retirement comes with the pension. Medical separation does not. You might get disability pay from the VA, but you don't get the full retirement. So some people do retire much earlier from the military, but for the most part, you're looking at 20 plus years. There's a total of three different types of pension that people in the military right now can be getting. The high 36 is what I'm under, and that's the traditional military pension. So the high 36 works out to be 2.5% of for however many years. So if you've worked 20 years times two and a half percent, you get 50% of your highest 36 months of pay. So that's usually at the end of your career is your highest pay. For me, so for instance, let's say that my highest 36 months of pay averaged out to $8,000. That would mean that I get 50% of $8,000 and that's just basic pay. I'm just talking about basic pay. If your basic pay average was $8,000 for the highest 36 months, you would get 50% of that, which is $4,000 a month for the rest of your life. Inflation adjusted, and then you also get military health care and base benefits and things like that. If you stay more years, you obviously get extra money, so you can get 55%, 60%, whatever. There used to be a cap of 75%, but that went away a few years ago. So now you can actually earn, if you are one of the extremely rare few who stays more than 40 years, 40 times 2.5% is 100. If you stay 41 years, you can actually get 102.5% of your base pay. But that's so (laughs) rare as, I mean, probably nobody who ever listens to this will ever fall into that situation. (laughs) And then there's a new blended retirement system where they lowered the pension amount. So it's only 2% per year. But the people who fall under the blended retirement system, they get TSP matching. So I don't get any money from the government going into my TSP. Everything that's in the TSP is my own contributions and my earnings. Justin, I think you're blended retirement system, right? Yeah. So he is getting a 5% match on his money. So a lot of people didn't like the blended retirement system because they said, oh my God, the pension's smaller. Well, yeah, the pension is smaller because you get a bigger TSP. And, oh, by the way, for the the TSP portion, you get to walk away with that if you leave the military in less than 20 years. Whereas if I left right now, so I've served for fifteen over 15 years at this point. If I leave now, I walk away with no money from the government. I walk away with my TSP, but the government gives me nothing. So, yeah, it's it's a big change. For the enlisted side... Looking at their pension amounts, like I said, it tends to be about half. So 
an enlisted member who is retiring after 20 years, instead of looking at about $4,000 a month, they might be getting about $2,000 a month. It's pretty typical for an enlisted pension starting right now. So if somebody retired this year to be around twenty eight dollars to $30,000 a year. I think another cool distinction between the traditional retirement that most people are used to, like you're under that high 36 plan and the blended that some people overlook is not only do you get to keep that money, that that match money, but also when you look at kind of long-term wealth, right? So all of that pension money, it dies with you. It doesn't just keep going forever. Now, obviously, if you're married, you can do some things. You can pass that on to them. There's some insurance you can do. But it's not like, it's not something you can put in a trust. It can just continue to live forever. And I thought that was kind of one cool thing that depending on your circumstances that some people overlooked was having more of that money, aka that that match money, that I call forever money. That's money that you could put in a trust that could live for generations. But another perk that a lot of people don't talk about that I think is one of the coolest perks, and actually, if I don't do 20 years, would be the actually one of the top things that I'll be regretting is space available flying or space A flying. So curious if you have any big plans for that or if you just want to talk about what that is. Okay. So space available or space A is... The military is obviously constantly flying all over the world, and we also have hotels all over the world, so military lodging all over the world. With Space A, if there is a spot available on the plane or in the hotel, you can use it as long as you have you know, the right level of priority. So this is definitely something that I want to do once I retire. I've never been able to take advantage of it while I've been in the military just because my leave plan's don't usually have that amount of flux in them because if you don't make it on the plane because somebody higher priority comes along, that's a downside of Space A. But if you get on the plane, you know, with space available, if you have a spot available, you can get on that plane for basically zero dollars. I want to say it's actually like, I don't know, five or six dollars that they charge you just for like fuel or something, but it's it's almost nothing. And you can go all over the world this way. There's websites set up for showing you how to do it and how to figure out who's flying where and your likelihood of going somewhere. So I absolutely plan to do this once I retire. One thing that somebody taught me that I think is just the most genius idea ever is, so there's different tiers of priority. When you are still in the military, but you are on your terminal leave, so at the end of your career, you can take your saved up leave or vacation time. And in that time period, you are one of the higher priorities for Space A. Once you retire, you drop to the bottom of the list. So I'm planning to save up all my leave so that when I retire, I will have hopefully 90 days to just go travel all over the world, flying for free, staying in cheap military lodging for like, I think it's like $55 a night right now in places like Germany and Hawaii and Japan and just all over. So I definitely want to do that. The other cool thing is like you might be on a cargo plane, so you could just like lay out in the bottom in a sleeping bag. Like you're not you're not in a traditional, you know, commercial airplane either. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, people don't realize. So it sounds bad to say that you're in a cargo airplane, but like I have flown to Afghanistan on these cargo planes and I mean you can set up an air mattress if you want to, <laughs> or some people will hook up a hammock and they will like I mean, you will legit be laid out. It is nice. Well, Military Dollar, I really love this episode. It's not too often that I get to kind of, you know, use some of the military jargon and go back and forth. So really liked your story. And I know you've got a ton of good information out there for 
not just military people, but if, you know, if they are military people, it's some very good information. And if people want to get that and kind of stay in contact with you and follow your story, where's the best place for them to do that? So my blog is militarydollar.com, or you can find me on Facebook at my name on Facebook is Airman Mill Dollar, or you can go to the Military Dollar page on Facebook. I'm also in a lot of the Facebook groups. So if you just type in like military personal finance group in Facebook, you'll find me in a lot of them. And then on Twitter, I'm military underscore dollar. Awesome. And one question we'd like to ask all of our guests, since you are military, this is a military episode. You can tailor this towards the military or towards gen pop. You like that lingo there? <laughs> <laughs> what is your number one tip for people on their path to financial independence? Ooh, man, it's changed over the years. I think right now, just seeing how much it's grown over the last year or two and how kind of uptight people are right now, it would be chill. Like, (laughs) just use the tips and tricks of the financial independence community. You do not have to achieve financial independence in two years. This is not a race. You don't have to beat anybody. Just enjoy the ride. No matter what you're doing, you're going to be getting better than if you had not discovered FI and not started taking these actions in your life to take more ownership of your personal finance. So, you don't have to be the ultimate FI member. Just you're doing a great job. Think about that. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, that's great advice. And we're going to try to eke out one bit more of information out of you. And that is the wild card question. So this is the question that I'm not ready for. Cody's not ready for. We never even know who's going to ask it until like the last second. So are you ready, Mill Dollar? I don't really have a choice. Go for <laughs> it. <laughs> okay. So... What I want you to do is quickly describe to me, so this is a little less of a, I guess it's still a question. So the question is, in a quick response, if you could design this like perfect lifestyle, imagine 20 years from now, like it doesn't have to be traditional. Who are you living with? What are you doing on a day-to-day basis? What kind of skill sets are you looking for to recruit into this society? What does it look like? Oh man, I think I know why you've asked me this question. (laughs) So... I don't know who exactly I'm going to be living with. Maybe a husband at that point. I don't know. But I want to create a community where everybody lives in tiny homes and we have like a communal area and we cook together and we have like a a shared living space and we help each other out. And most importantly, I want it to be part of a nonprofit that I want to start. So I want it to be a space where we can also teach financial skills to adults, give like some adulting classes, maybe some cooking classes, things like that. But also during summer times when some poor students don't necessarily, a lot of poor students rely on schools for their breakfast and lunch every day. So I want to bring in poor students during the summers when they're off and they're not getting that food and a little more food insecure and feed them and keep them learning throughout the summer so that they don't learn the, lose the skills they learned during the previous school year and also teach them financial independence skill sets so that when they start earning money, when they become an adult, they can start out from a strong position. Awesome. People may can tell I was cheating a little bit because I know that you had this grand plan, but I'm just such a proponent of it and also a big fan of this idea of having a, a communal space where us in the community can kind of keep in contact, but also give back. So appreciate that response. Appreciate you uh, being on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for all the information. And I hope that 
this information can help everyone, but especially some of those people out there working hard for us in the military and that they can take care of themselves. All right. Thank you guys so much for having me. All right, Justin. Well, I think I'm going to do a crash landing into this outro. You see the little Air Force joke there. But man, what did you think about this episode? Because obviously you have a military background. You probably had a little bit different of a take than I did, but I thought it was a valuable episode nonetheless. Yeah, I mean, you know, this episode, I think, was still really valuable for everyone, even though it obviously had that military angle and is going to give those people even more value. It was really cool to get to see somebody else who's been through some of the same things that I have and seen some of the same things happen to military members that I have, whether it's seeing them spend all their money coming back from a deployment or being taken advantage of by these car loan places or just even the way that our mindset is different because our pay is so different. Like it's it's hard for people to kind of get used to that idea of a part of your check being different just because of where you live or it being kind of labeled as housing, even though you got to think about it in a different way. That's actually interesting because if people don't know, we usually listen to the episode once and then we'll do the intro outro after just so we can kind of reflect and make sure we got everything. And I listened back to when I kind of brought up like, hey, your housing is pretty much free. And Justin's like, no, that's exactly what I'm telling you. Like, it's not free. It's just part of your pay. But I think in our heads, we a lot of times like segment out different parts of our money. Like if we won the lottery tomorrow, say you won like $500,000 and you go spend 10 grand on something in your mind, like that's nothing. But like 10 grand in your normal life, since it's not segmented as like crazy new lottery money is all of a sudden like you can just spend it on whatever you want. So I think there's something that goes on in our brains. Not sure exactly what it is where we kind of compartmentalize these different facets of our money. And then we say, oh, this is fine to spend on X because that's exactly what this money pool is for. It's kind of like the anti Dave Ramsey envelope method. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think as humans, we're always looking for an excuse to do what we really want to do. So if what you really want to do is to get a really nice place, then you can easily like make that happen by creating this excuse in your head to say, well, I mean, you know, they gave me $3,000 for this housing thing, right? So it would be totally cool for me to spend $3,000 on housing. Even though, like if you went to a normal person, you could cut out 40% of their paycheck and call it housing. That doesn't mean they should spend 40% of their income on housing. Like we just happen to have it broke down a different way. And it's just because they move us so much and, they're, and we don't have control over where we live. It's a way for them to kind of adjust our income based on the cost of living in the area we are. And I mean, one of the things that was crazy, I know Military Dollar was telling us that it is possible, like if you eat, I think you call it the chow hall and you stay in the barracks or whatever. <laughs> I'm trying to make sure I use the correct terminology here, but you can live like extremely cheaply. And so like if someone tells you exactly what to do and says, hey, if you do this for the next 20 years, you will literally be a millionaire in retirement, completely set up. You'll have your pension. You'll have your double fi, which Military Dollar is as well. And it's just mind boggling to me, like the lack, obviously this is in all of America, but the lack of common financial education in the military, because correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, but a lot of these classes are getting taught by officers who might also be living paycheck to paycheck, just with a lot higher paychecks than people who are fresh into the name your military branch. Yeah, I mean, I think the education that we get faces a lot of the same problems you see everywhere else. It's their education, like the big goals are kind of goals that we would not even consider. I mean, it's like, say, try to save a 10% of your paycheck. It's like, no, you could do so much better than that. So when that's like the big goal is so small, then, you know, when they're not meeting those, like even if they did, it wouldn't help them that much, but they're still not meeting those. And a lot of times they're not even letting officers who are really passionate about this stuff teach those classes unless it's kind of under the radar and you're doing it like in your own unit to do it like at a base level. A lot of these bases have these people who teach that and they won't allow you to teach it or you're not like 
you're not certified in some weird thing, so you can't teach it, even though you're much more knowledgeable than they actually are. The best education I've seen at my bases were actually some of the collaborations that they did with a federal credit union that was on the base. And that was actually some pretty good education, but I'm sure there's a lot of different bases, a lot of different quality of teaching, but I have heard of multiple cases where people were really passionate about this stuff, really smart, but they weren't allowed to spread, you know, especially like this fire message on the base. I wouldn't be surprised if I heard about some like hooded, cloaked sanction that meets at like 10 o'clock at night, (laughs) founded by the Saving Sherpa and Military Dollar. (laughs) Totally joking around, Justin, but do you think you could just give us kind of a one minute overview for those people who aren't in the military who are really interested in this stuff and they just heard this hour long podcast episode, but can you condense it into maybe one minute, just hit some of the high level stuff, military specific? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the things we'll look at is kind of those assumptions and the realities. And so not everyone in the military is just, you know, this kind of uneducated person who didn't have any other option. So that's true on both the enlisted side and the officer side. Like there are some just super high quality people. Some of the smartest people I've ever seen and worked with were in the military. So that's probably assumption number one that I'd like to break down is that on the enlisted and the officer side, some very sharp people. The second thing is the amount of money that we make. So You'd be shocked at how many times I'm in somewhere and somebody's trying to buy me something, not just because like, I'm in the military and they're trying to be grateful, but you can tell it's because they don't think we get paid enough. But in reality, I think officers get paid plenty. Now, I think we could do more to pay the enlisted folks better and give them more opportunities. But on the officer side, they actually do make good money. Then you got the education piece. So another assumption is that the military just pays for everyone's education. It is true that you get eligible for education kind of after the fact through something called the GI Bill. But most people coming in who get that bachelor's degree as an officer, they actually don't get any money until the very end. They get like a little stipend. And then the last thing is understanding that military people, just because you serve, they don't get health insurance and retirement forever as soon as they get out. Like it's all or nothing pretty much. If you don't do those 20 years, then you're really not getting anything. Oh, and I guess last, just to reiterate on the housing thing. So no, your housing is not free. If it is, it just means you're getting paid less. And to me, that doesn't sound free at all. So, oh yeah. And one last thing for the TSP, it's not something you should be afraid of. It is actually a very good investment vehicle. It's very simple to use. It's got those target date funds. It's got the total stock market funds, which are very similar to what you'll see a lot of people, you know, recommending you to get into on like a Vanguard, for instance. So it has very good investment vehicles at an extremely low expense ratio. So don't be afraid to use that because not on top of that, you're also getting tax advantages. And just because you quit early or you separate early and you don't get a retirement, that doesn't mean they're going to take that money. That TSP money is yours. So absolutely take advantage of the TSP. Yeah, Justin, I think that's really great advice. And another thing that I want to... Whoa. What is it, Cody? It's the call to action, man. And this week's call to action is if you can think of any friend, family member, anyone you know who's in the military, maybe they struggle with money management, send them this episode. Say, hey, with us, these really cool guys, Cody and Justin, who have this podcast, The Fi Show, they had Military Dollar on and they talked all about all of the different nuances that go with managing your money in the military. So that is your homework for today, the call to action. Share this with anyone you know who's in the military, remotely interested in the military, just joined the military, anyone at all. Yeah, Cody, I definitely like that call to action because there's so many people out there in the military, which just like everybody in the world who could use this education, but sometimes it's a little harder for them to find the education because the things that affect them are just a little bit different. And if you heard us talk about something and you really want to dig into it, or you maybe want some links to Military Dollar so you can keep up with her story, you can find everything in the show notes over at thefyshow.com slash military dollar. 
And as always, we want to recommend you join one of the best, most fun, inclusive, no-holds-barred Facebook groups at thefiveshow.com slash community. And as always, those five-star reviews always help get us great guests and just keep us motivated. So thanks for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. Mm-hmm.